Samuel Pepys, by Robert Louis Stevenson. In two books a fresh light has recently been thrown on the character and position of Samuel Pepys. Mr. Minner's Bright has given us a new transcription of the diary, increasing it in bulk by near a third, correcting many errors, and completing our knowledge of the man in some curious and important points. We can only regret that he has taken liberties with the author and the public. It is no part of the duties of the editor of an established classic to decide what may or may not be tedious to the reader. The book is either an historical document or not, and in condemning Lord Braybrook Mr. Bright condemns himself. As for the time-honored phrase, unfit for publication, without being cynical, we may regard it as the sign of a precaution more or less commercial, and we may think, without being sordid, that when we purchase six huge and distressingly expensive volumes, we are entitled to be treated rather more like scholars and rather less like children. But Mr. Bright may rest assured, while we complain, we are still grateful. Mr. Wheatley, to divide our obligation, brings together, clearly and with no lost words, a body of illustrative material. Sometimes we might ask a little more, never, I think, less. And as a matter of fact, a great part of Mr. Wheatley's volume might be transferred, by a good editor of Pepys, to the margin of the text, for it is precisely what the reader wants. In the light of these two books, at least, we have now to read our author. Between them they contain all we can expect to learn for, it may be, many years. Now, if ever, we should be able to form some notion of that unparalleled figure in the annals of mankind unparalleled for three good reasons, first, because he was a man known to his contemporaries in a halo of almost historical pomp, and to his remote descendants with an indecent familiarity, like a taproom comrade, second, because he has outstripped all competitors in the art or virtue of a conscious honesty about oneself, and, third, because, being in many ways a very ordinary person he has yet placed himself before the public eye with such a fullness and such an intimacy of detail as might be envied by a genius like Montaigne. Not then for his own sake only, but as a character in a unique position, endowed with a unique talent, and shedding a unique light upon the lives of the mass of making, he is surely worthy of prolonged and patient study. The Diary That there should be such a book as Pepys' Diary is incomparably strange. Pepys, in a corrupt and idle period, played the man in public employments, toiling hard and keeping his honor bright. Much of the little good that is set down to James II comes by right to Pepys, and if it were little for a king, it is much for a subordinate. To his clear, capable head was owing somewhat of the greatness of England on the seas. In the exploits of Hawk, Rodney, or Nelson, this dead Mr. Pepys of the Navy office had some considerable share. He stood well by his business in the appalling plague of 1666. He was loved and respected by some of the best and wisest men in England. He was president of the Royal Society, and when he came to die, people said of his conduct in that solemn hour thinking it needless to say more that it was answerable to the greatness of his life. Thus he walked in dignity, guards of soldiers sometimes attending him in his walks, subalterns bowing before his periwig, and when he uttered his thoughts they were suitable to his state and services. On February 8, 1668, we find him writing to Evelyn, his mind bitterly occupied with the late Dutch war, and some thoughts of the different story of the repulse of the great armada, sir, you will not wonder at the backwardness of my thanks for the present you made me, so many days since, of the prospect of the Medway, while the Hollander rode master in it.
when I have told you that the sight of it hath led me to such reflections on my particular interest, by my employment, in the reproach due. To that miscarriage, as have given me little less disquiet than he is fancied to have who found his face in Michelangelo's hell. The same should serve me also an excuse for my silence in celebrating your mastery shown in the design and draft, did not indignation rather than courtship urge me so far to commend them, as to wish the furniture of our House of Lords changed from the story of 88 to that of 67, of Evelyn's designing, till the pravity of this were reformed to the temper of that age, wherein God Almighty found his blessings more operative than, I fear, he doth in ours his judgments. This is a letter honorable to the writer, where the meaning rather than the words is eloquent. Such was the account he gave of himself to his contemporaries, such thoughts he chose to utter, and in such language, giving himself out for a grave and patriotic public servant. We turn to the same date in the diary by which he is known, after two centuries, to his descendants. The entry begins in the same key with the letter, blaming the madness of the House of Commons and the base proceedings, just the epitome of all our public proceedings in this age, of the House of Lords, and then, without the least transition, this is how our diarist proceeds, to the Strand, to my booksellers, and there bought an idle, roguish French book, L'Escal de Fias, which I have bought in plain binding, avoiding the buying of it better bound, because I resolve, as soon as I have read it, to burn it, that it may not stand in the list of books, nor among them, to disgrace them, if it should be found. Even in our day, when responsibility is so much more clearly apprehended, the man who wrote the letter would be notable, but what about the man, I do not say who bought a roguish book, but who was ashamed of doing so, yet did it, and recorded both the doing and the shame in the pages of his daily journal. We all, whether we write or speak, must somewhat drape ourselves when we address our fellows, at a given moment we apprehend our character and acts by some particular side, we are merry with one, grave with another, as befits the nature and demands of the relation. Pepe's letter to Evelyn would have little in common with that other one to Mrs. Nip which he signed by the pseudonym of Dapper Dicky, yet each would be suitable to the character of his correspondent. There is no untruth in this, for man, being a protean animal, swiftly shares and changes with his company and surroundings, and these changes are the better part of his education in the world. To strike a posture once for all, and to march through life like a drum major, is to be highly disagreeable to others and a fool for oneself into the bargain. To Evelyn and to Nip we understand the double-facing, but to whom was he posing in the diary, and what, in the name of astonishment, was the nature of the pose? Had he suppressed all mention of the book, or had he bought it, gloried in the act, and cheerfully recorded his glorification, in either case we should have made him out. But no, he is full of precautions to conceal the disgrace of the purchase, and yet speeds to chronicle the whole affair in pen and ink. It is a sort of anomaly in human action, which we can exactly parallel from another part of the diary. Mrs. Pepys had written a paper of her two just complaints against her husband and written it in plain and very pungent English. Pepys, in an agony lest the world should come to see it, brutally seizes and destroys the telltale document, and then you disbelieve your eyes down goes the whole story with unsparing truth and in the cruelest detail. It seems he has no design but to appear respectable, and here he keeps a private book to prove he was not. You are at first faintly reminded of some of the vagaries of the morbid religious diarist, but at a moment's thought the resemblance disappears. The design of Pepys is not at all to edify, it is not from repentance that he chronicles his peccadilloes, for he tells us when he does repent, and to be just to him, there often follows some improvement. 
Again, the sins of the religious diarist are of a very formal pattern, and are told with an elaborate wine. But in Peeps you come upon good, substantive misdemeanors, beams in his eye of which he alone remains unconscious, healthy outbreaks of the animal nature, and laughable subterfuges to himself that always command belief and often engage the sympathies. Peeps was a young man for his age, came slowly to himself in the world, sowed his wild oats late, took late to industry, and preserved till nearly forty the headlong gusto of a boy. So, to come rightly at the spirit in which the diary was written, we must recall a class of sentiments which with most of us are over and done before the age of twelve. In our tender years we still preserve a freshness of surprise at our prolonged existence, events make an impression out of all proportion to their consequence, we are unspeakably touched by our own past adventures, and look forward to our future personality with sentimental interest. It was something of this, I think, that clung to Peeps. Although not sentimental in the abstract, he was sweetly sentimental about himself. His own past clung about his heart, an evergreen. He was the slave of an association. He could not pass by Islington, where his father used to carry him to cakes and ale, but he must light at the king's head and eat and drink for remembrance of the old house's sake. He counted it good fortune to lie a night at Epsom to renew his old walks, where Mrs. Helly, and I did use to walk and talk, with whom I had the first sentiments of love and pleasure in a woman's company, discourse and taking her by the hand, she being a pretty woman. He goes about weighing up the assurance, which lay near Woolwich under water, and cries in a parenthesis, poor ship, that I have been twice Marion, in Captain Holland's time, and after revisiting the Naseby, now changed into the Charles, he confesses it was a great pleasure to myself to see the ship that I began my good fortune in. The stone that he was cut for he preserved in a case, and to the Turners he kept alive such gratitude for their assistance that for years, and after he had begun to mount himself into higher zones, he continued to have that family to dinner on the anniversary of the operation. Not Hazlitt nor Rousseau had a more romantic passion for their past, although at times they might express it more romantically, and if Pepys shared with them this childish fondness, did not Rousseau, who left behind him the Confessions, or Hazlitt, who wrote the Libera Morris, and loaded his essays with loving personal detail, share with Pepys in his unwearied egotism. For the two things go hand in hand, or, to be more exact, it is the first that makes the second either possible or pleasing. But, to be quite in sympathy with Pepys, we must return once more to the experience of children. I can remember to have written, in the flyleaf of more than one book, the date and the place where I then was if, for instance, I was ill in bed or sitting in a certain garden, these were jottings for my future self, if I should chance on such a note in after years, I thought it would cause me a particular thrill to recognize myself across the intervening distance. Indeed, I might come upon them now, and not be moved one title, which shows that I have comparatively failed in life, and grown older than Samuel Pepys. For in the diary we can find more than one such note of perfect childish egotism, as when he explains that his candle is going out, which makes me write thus slobberingly, or as in this incredible particularity, to my study, where I only wrote thus much of this day's passage to this, and so out again, or lastly, as here, with more of circumstance, I stayed up till the bellman came by with his bell under my window, as I was writing of this very line, and cried, past one of the clock, and a cold, frosty, windy morning. Such passages are not to be misunderstood. The appeal to Samuel Pepys years hence is unmistakable. He desires that dear, though unknown, gentleman keenly to realize his predecessor, 
to remember why a passage was uncleanly written, to recall, let us fancy, with a sigh, the tones of the bellman, the chill of the early, windy morning, and the very line his own romantic self was scribing at the moment. The man, you will perceive, was making reminiscences a sort of pleasure by ricochet, which comforts many in distress, and turns some others into sentimental libertines, and the whole book, if you will but look at it in that way, is seen to be a work of art to Peep's own address. Here then, we have the key to that remarkable attitude preserved by him throughout his diary, to that unflinching I had almost said, that unintelligent sincerity which makes it a miracle among human books. He was not unconscious of his errors far from it, he was often startled into shame, often reformed, often made and broke his vows of change. But whether he did ill or well, he was still his own unequaled self, still that entrancing ego of whom alone he cared to write, and still sure of his own affectionate indulgence, when the parts should be changed and the writer come to read what he had written. Whatever he did or said or thought or suffered, it was still a trait of Pepys, a character of his career, and as, to himself, he was more interesting than Moses or than Alexander, so all should be faithfully set down. I have called his diary a work of art. Now when the artist has found something, word or deed, exactly proper to a favorite character in play or novel, he will neither suppress nor diminish it, though the remark be silly or the act mean. The hesitation of Hamlet, the credulity of Othello, the baseness of Emma Bovary, or the irregularities of Mr. Swiveller, caused neither disappointment nor disgust to their creators. And so with Pepys and his adored protagonist, adored not blindly, but with trenchant insight and enduring, human toleration. I have gone over and over the greater part of the diary, and the points where, to the most suspicious scrutiny, he has seemed not perfectly sincere, are so few, so doubtful, and so petty, that I am ashamed to name them. It may be said that we all of us write such a diary in airy characters upon our brain, but I fear there is a distinction to be made, I fear that as we render to our consciousness an account of our daily fortunes and behavior, we too often weave a tissue of romantic compliments and dull excuses, and even if Peeps were the ass and coward that men call him, we must take rank as sillier and more cowardly than he. The bald truth about oneself, what we are all too timid to admit when we are not too dull to see it, that was what he saw clearly and set down unsparingly. It is improbable that the diary can have been carried on in the same single spirit in which it was begun. Pepys was not such an ass, but he must have perceived, as he went on, the extraordinary nature of the work he was producing. He was a great reader, and he knew what other books were like. It must, at least, have crossed his mind that someone might ultimately decipher the manuscript, and he himself, with all his pains and pleasures, be resuscitated in some later day, and the thought, although discouraged, must have warmed his heart. He was not such an ass, besides, but he must have been conscious of the deadly explosives, the gun cotton and the giant powder, he was hoarding in his drawer. Let some contemporary light upon the journal, and Pepys was plunged forever in social and political disgrace. We can trace the growth of his terrors by two facts. In 1660, while the diary was still in its youth, he tells about it, as a matter of course, to a lieutenant in the Navy, but in 1669, when it was already near an end, he could have bitten his tongue out, as the saying is, because he had let slip his secret to one so grave and friendly as Sir William Coventry. And from two other facts I think we may infer that he had entertained, even if he had not acquiesced in, the thought of a far distant publicity. The first is of capital importance, the diary was not destroyed. 
The second that he took unusual precautions to confound the cipher in roguish passages proves, beyond question, that he was thinking of some other reader besides himself. Perhaps while his friends were admiring the greatness of his behavior at the approach of death, he may have had a twinkling hope of immortality. Mens kujuskis est quisk, said his chosen motto, and, as he had stamped his mind with every crook and foible in the pages of the diary, he might feel that what he left behind him was indeed himself. There is perhaps no other instance so remarkable of the desire of man for publicity and an enduring name. The greatness of his life was open, yet he longed to communicate its smallness also, and, while contemporaries bowed before him, he must buttonhole posterity with the news that his periwig was once alive with nits. But this thought, although I cannot doubt he had it, was neither his first nor his deepest, it did not color one word that he wrote, the diary, for as long as he kept it, remained what it was when he began, a private pleasure for himself. It was his bosom secret, it added a zest to all his pleasures, he lived in and for it, and might well write these solemn words, when he closed that confidant forever, and so I betake myself to that course which is almost as much as to see myself go into the grave, for which, and all the discomforts that will accompany my being blind, the good God prepare me.